Okay, very good. Jeremy, do you mind pulling that door shut? Or Billy? Thank you, Billy. Appreciate that. All right, let's, um, let's get started this morning by praying together. Let me pray for us. Father, we're thankful for um, the Lord's Day in which we can gather together as your people um, to fellowship with you. And Father, we thank you that you promised to dwell with us by your Spirit, especially when we gather today on this day um, with your people. We pray that your Spirit would be with us now, that you would guide us even as we continue to talk about um, some of the distinctives and values of our church and how you've led us um, to try to inhabit this place here in the mid-cities at this time. Um, Father, I pray that you guide us. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, it's good to have you all this morning um, in, in class. Um, this fall, we have been going through, in, in this half of our Sunday school offering, um, a class where I've tried to articulate and summarize some of the core values that I see as the pastor here at um, uh, Colleyville Presbyterian Church of what I want our church to be and be about um, and the way in which I think we're, we're working that out um, as a community together with one another. Um, so this, there's some aspiration here, but largely I think I'm trying to describe our life as a church um, as it actually is. Um, and so just to review a little bit, um, we talked about several weeks ago, our first core value was union with Christ. And we talked about um, that first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which is the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Um, and this idea that somehow um, at the heart of who we are as human beings is that we are created not only to glorify God, but actually to enjoy Him, actually to dwell with Him, to commune with Him. Um, and we, we talked about how at the end of the day, that is the fundamental purpose of our church's existence, is to be a place, and we believe that this is the reason Jesus Christ um, left the church on earth and, and delegated his authority to it in particular ways um, so that men, women, and children would be drawn into communion with the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, and that we do that particularly through the mediation of the person of Jesus Christ such that we can talk about abiding with him, being united to him, um, is the purpose, the goal of our lives. Um, we talked about how two of the most fundamental verses that you will hear in the life of our church are first from Matthew 3, where the Father says to the Son, you are the beloved, um, that that is an important phrase for us as a church, that as the Father speaks those words to the Son in our union with Jesus, we receive them as well. And it is in that fact of our belovedness in Christ that provides the foundation for everything that we are, everything that we do. And we also talked about um, uh, the phrase, Christ is your life, which comes out of um, Colossians 3 and, of course, is in our liturgy every week. And this idea that as we dwell with Christ, um, He actually becomes our life. He becomes our nourishment, our strength, our all, as we are united to Him. And it really is that, that personal, covenantal, um, um, spirit-wrought union with Jesus that is at the heart of who we want to be um, as a church body, um, that we... Uh, that we, we, we live that out and experience that um, in communion with one another, our communion with Jesus. Um, the second week, we talked about the means of grace and the reality that, 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 that category of union with Christ that we experience is not just a binary, static sort of thing. Um, it's not just an on-off switch. It's actually something that we grow in over time. We looked at a Calvin quote where Calvin talks about how Christ cleaves to us more and more until over time we finally become fully one with Him, that our oneness with Christ, our union with Christ is actually something that we grow into over time. 
And then we looked at the scriptures, especially Acts 2, where um, um, uh, Luke talks about the establishment of the church and how they would um, dedicate themselves to the teaching of the apostles and prayer and fellowship and the breaking of bread with one another. And talked about the means of grace and how we believe here at CPC that um, it's not a mystery how we grow in our union with Christ. It's not some unknowable uh, path um, to spiritual maturity. Um, Rather, the Lord in His gracious love for us has given us particular means of His grace and by grace, we don't just mean some sort of abstract store of you know, points with God. We mean the person of the Lord Jesus. Um, God has given us a way in which to dwell with Jesus. And we do that as we commune with him in word, sacrament, and prayer. I'm going back to that verse in Acts 2. The apostles' teaching being uh, the word, prayer, of course, and the breaking of the bread, the Eucharist, the fellowship, um, being the context in which all of those things take place, word, sacrament, and prayer. As we talked about how really at the heart of everything that we try to offer as a church are the means of grace, because we think they are really central to who we are as a people. Um, we talked about you know, the fact that we have weekly uh, prayer on Wednesdays, we have Bible studies that we offer, um, and we, we are always praying in those Bible studies, and when we get together for Men of the Covenant, we're praying responsive psalms, and we're closing with the Compline service together, and we're, we're reading the scriptures. Like Whenever we are getting together, we're wanting um, to orient our life around these means of grace because we think they're so central. It's not just a, you know, just a random decision. It's because actually we think this is how the Lord has provided us a means of dwelling with Christ and growing in our union with Him through the means of grace, word, sacrament, and prayer. And so we want those things to be at the heart of what our church does. And then last week we talked about two core values. The first was the centrality of the Lord's Day for our church. I think this is a really important thing. Um, for our church, that we really see Sunday as the most important day of the week, um, the first day of the week, um, the day in which we are particularly called into God's house together to be with one another, and how we avail ourselves of those means of grace and we grow in our union with Christ most primarily in Lord's Day worship as we're gathered as the church formally on the Lord's Day. That is when the Lord particularly dwells with us in word um, sacrament and prayer. And of course, all of our worship service is are oriented around those means of grace. You know, we, we hear the word over and over again throughout the service. We, we say it to one another. Um, we pray continually, not only written prayers, not only extemporaneous prayers, petitions prayed by an elder, but also we sing together. And our hymns are actually sung prayers to God as we join together. And of course, we, our worship culminates every week in the Lord's Supper. Right? We, we receive um, the means of grace, Christ himself by the Spirit, as we commune with him. And that's happening all throughout the service, though, and the preaching of the word and the prayers of the people, and then finally in the reception of the sacrament. Um, so we talked about that and how, because of that reality, um, we really emphasize that a fundamental part of being a member of our church is being present on the Lord's Day for worship. This is a really central thing that you were called to do. I've talked about how I've, I've begun over time to see more and more that one of my primary tasks as a pastor is to help people love the Sabbath, basically, um, to recalibrate their lives around the Lord's Day, um, that this is actually a deeply countercultural thing um, for us to do. And I'm, I'm firmly convinced that if there is to be a, 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 a witness of Christianity that exists in the Western world as, you know, overall the Western world drifts away from um, Christian identity. Sabbath keeping, Sabbath practices, Lord's Day practices are going to have to be at the heart of that. It's going to have to be a central thing. Um, How we discipline and orient our time differently from others is going to have to be central to who we are 
as a Christian people. And I think that if you look at the scope of biblical history, you'll, you'll always see that that was the case. Um, that that was one of the things that the prophets emphasized again and again. And it's not just because God's picky, um, it's because something happens when we orient our lives around time and space. Um, it flows out into the rest of the days of the week. Um, so we talked about that some last week. We also talked about our worship service and how our worship service works. We talked about that phrase that's printed on our order of worship every week, uh, that our worship is a divine service of covenant renewal, um, that, that the Lord, we believe, actually is serving us when we worship together, that He actually is, is um, speaking to us, um, that the, the pastor has an important role in our worship service for that reason, um, to stand in as a representative of the Lord Jesus to us as a, His bride, um, that we receive, um, and our, the whole service is a kind of dialogue where Jesus speaks to us and we respond. Um, Jesus serves us and we receive Him and we praise Him for His goodness. Um, that the whole service is this kind of holy, divine dialogue that goes back and forth um, and, and is, a, is a way in which, is the way in which God renews His covenant with us each week. And we call our service covenant renewal um, worship, but we don't mean by that primarily that we come to renew our covenant with God, but rather that God promises to appear in the person of His Son by the power of His Spirit to renew His covenant with us. And that is what He's doing week by week. So that's kind of a quick overview of everything we've talked about in the last three weeks. Any questions or comments before we jump into new stuff today? Anything at all? Very good. All right, let's move into some new stuff. So today I wanted to try to cover two um, core values. And these, these are, you know, I think we've covered sort of the really fundamental, um, really central core values. But these are definitely still important values for our church, even if they are a little bit lower down on the list. Um, but still, I think they're important. The first one is what I'm calling that we want our church to be a Christian and Reformed church. Um, uh, and what I mean by that is this. Um, David Torrance, who's the son of one of my favorite 20th century theologians, Thomas F. Torrance, who was a, a Scottish Presbyterian um, pastor and theologian, he said this about his father and mother, our parents had a living, dynamic faith centered not on a system of belief, but on the person of Jesus Christ. Our parents had a living, dynamic faith centered not on a system of belief, but on the person of Jesus Christ. I saw that quote um, a week or two ago, and I just thought, yes, that encapsulates really well the kind of thing that I'm hoping our church is about, um, the kind of thing that I hope my children will say about me uh, one day. Um, um, we are Reformed here. I think that's pretty clear. You know, we have a Reformation Day liturgy um, this morning that is um, really complex and, you know, in some ways archaic uh, because most, most of it was written 500 years ago. Um, uh, you know, I love the Westminster Standards um, so much. Um, my appreciation for them has grown a great deal over the years. Uh, you know, I was ordained as a pastor after having been reformed only for four or five years, really, um, maybe six years. Um, you know, I, I didn't grow up memorizing the Westminster Shorter Catechism or, you know, the familiarity with the standards. So as I've been a pastor, my appreciation and even knowledge of the standards has grown a great deal. And I love the standards. Anyone who, um, you know, I serve on our TEC committee where we examine new candidates, and I'm the guy who's always, like, asking about the larger catechism, you know, and what they think about particular parts of it. Because I think it's important, and I love the larger catechism. I think the Westminster Standards are the, um, the best um, summary of the Christian 
theology that has been yet produced in history, you know, by, in an uninspired way. I really think that historically. Um, and yet, for me, I don't want to primarily be known as a Westminster Standards proponent and lover. Um, I don't want our church primarily to be known um, as a, a reformed church even. I want us to be a Jesus church. I want us to be a church that is centered around the person of Jesus Christ. And, and that really is important to me. And I think it is a distinctive about our congregation. Not all Presbyterian churches are this way sometimes. I think there are some Presbyterian churches that kind of lead first with we're Presbyterian, right? That this is who we are in a fundamental way. Um, and I, I do think there are some ways in which as a church we, we, we are unapologetically Protestant and Reformed, you know? Um, you will often hear the standards quoted in sermons or in Sunday school and alluded to and talked about. Um, you know, I'll show up with them at the Bible studies that I teach and those kinds of things. Um, but we are a church that I want to be, as Torrance puts it here, a living dynamic faith centered not on a system of belief, but on the person of Jesus Christ. And honestly, that's what I love about the Westminster Standards most of all, is how they exposit and describe the work of Jesus Christ, his mediation, his death, his resurrection, and his incarnation, all these things. It just works it out so wonderfully. Um, and, and that's why I would primarily commend the Westminster Standards to you, because of the way they explicate and, and show off and reveal the work of Jesus. Um, so our church is distinctively and unapologetically Reformed and Presbyterian, but we are most fundamentally a Christian church, and we welcome all who belong to the historic Christian faith. So a couple ways this works out. In our membership vows, which are the membership vows of the PCA, um, there is nothing about being reformed. And I think that's good. I think that's a good thing. You know, our membership vows are basically, do you believe that you're a sinner who needs forgiveness? Um, do you trust in Jesus Christ um, for the forgiveness of your sins? Uh, do you promise to um, follow Jesus as becomes, um, a, or do you, do you promise to live a life as becomes a follower of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit? Um, do you promise to uh, support the church and its worship and its work to the best of your ability? And do you promise to submit to the government of the church um, and to work for its purity and its peace? And uh, none of those questions have anything to do really with Reformed theology. They're just about the Christian life. Um, and not Reformed theology in some kind of distinctive sectarian way. Um, that, but they're just, they're just Christian vows, and I think that's important. And so when we meet with people um, for membership as a session, we're not looking to make sure people are five-point Calvinists, right? That's not a fundamental thing um, for us. Um, we even, um, just so you know, uh, accept um, sometimes families into membership in our church that are not fully convinced of paedo-baptism, even though we obviously baptize babies, right? And we tell them, we're still going to baptize babies, right? That's not going to change. But if you're not convicted um, such that uh, you have come to this belief yourself, that's okay. You can join our church and we want to walk with you and continue to talk with you about this conviction. And hopefully, you know, we're not going to apologize. Like over time, we want your conviction to change um, because we think the scriptures say you should baptize your children. Um, but we also want to say your disagreement with us on this point of doctrine should not lead to you not being a member of our church and able to be um, fully with us and under our supervision and authority and with us in a formal way. Um, and, and I think that's important for y'all to know that, that that's, that's something that our session does, that we receive um, folks who are believers, um, not people who are, um, you know, fully subscribed to the Westminster Confession. That's not what we're looking for in members. Um, 
Uh, this is part of why we use the Nicene Creed so frequently in our worship or the Apostles' Creed rather than um, Reformed confessions. Occasionally we do you know, use Heidelberg number 1, um, which is basically just a Christian statement anyway. It's not really distinctively um, Reformed in some way. Um, but it's why we don't particularly use the Westminster Confession in our worship service as a, as a confession of faith. Uh, because we want our confession of faith to be confession of faith that is open to all Christians, um, to those who are baptized and believe in the Lord Jesus. Um, and there are basic fundamental things. I'm, I love the Westminster Standards, but I'm far more committed to the Nicene Creed than the Westminster Standards, right? And I hope that you are too, um, because the Nicene Creed um, expresses the, the core fundamentals of Christian belief um, and has done so historically um, throughout the ages um, since it was written. And, and so that's a part of why we do that in our service. We have, we have these universal Christian statements that we confess together. And also, um, I think this plays out, this commitment to being a Christian church first, and how I always try to speak of other Christian churches, and how I encourage all of us to speak of other Christian churches. There are ways in which we disagree with other Christian churches, obviously. Um, and there are sometimes we have to critique and point out those disagreements and say, you know, they do things this way, and we do things this way, and here's why we do it. But I, it's really important to me as a pastor of this church um, to be careful in the way that I speak of other Christians, other faithful Christian churches. Um, I don't ever want our church to be primarily defined by a kind of polemic, um, a negative sort of posture towards everyone else, such that we have this, you know, implied idea that, well, we've got it right, and everyone else has got it fundamentally wrong. Um, and it would just be really perfect if everyone would just adopt our beliefs on every point on which we disagree, right? Um, and you know what I mean, right? There are churches, I think, that have that kind of posture. And it's really important to me that we not be that way. Um, that we say, yes, we fully believe that, you know, the things that we believe are correct because they're in submission to the scriptures, but we also have enough epistemological humility to acknowledge that we could be wrong, on some things, right? You know, like we may not have it all right. Um, and the, the, the maturity uh, that, that Jesus promises to the church is going to be a long process. And, you know, it's still ongoing, right? The church is still being reformed and changed and matured. And we see ourselves as a part of that. We are also being matured and changed and reformed. Uh, we're not the, the goal for everyone else's reformation. Um, and so I think it's important for us to say that as a church. And that, that's really, that's really a, a really important value for me, for us to embody. Any questions about that? Or comments? <laughs> You're welcome. You're welcome. Absolutely. Did you have a hand up, Kim? Okay. All right, let's talk about reform, because we not are not only a Christian church, we are also a reformed church, and we are very happy um, to be a reformed church. Don't mishear me um, about that. Um, but what do we mean by reformed? What do we mean by reformed? I think that's a really important question. Um, I want you to hear me say that when, you, that when we're a reformed church, we, this does not just mean that we uh, believe in uh, TULIP, right? The, the five uh, points of Calvinism, quote-unquote, even though Calvin was dead a hundred years before the tool, the five, his five points were written, right? <laughs> he actually, um, you know, they came later um, by people who were disciples of Calvin and followers of him. Um, I'm not even sure Calvin would have really summarized his system of doctrine in that 
according to those, those uh, five points. So we mean way more than the five points of Calvinism, right? Total depravity and all the rest. Um, we do mean that, and we, we do hold, I think, to a five-point kind of Calvinism, as it's classically understood, but we mean by Reformed theology far more than that. We mean the Westminster Standards, um, certainly. Um, that is the document to which all office bearers in our church um, must subscribe and state any differences that they have um, with their session or their presbytery, as the case may be. Um, but I think as a Reformed church, we want to acknowledge that the Reformed uh, movement, that the Protestant Reformation was a far broader movement than just the one that got articulated and summarized in the Westminster Standards. And I personally want, I want you to know that I love the other Reformed confessions that come out of um, that era. I love the Heidelberg Catechism. I love the Canons of Dort and uh, the Helvetic Confession and the Belgic Confession and the Scots Confession. We're using a, a, a part of the Scots Confession this morning in our worship because of Reformation Day. Um, you know, the, there's, a, there's a certain particular tradition from Calvin um, to uh, Knox um, to, you know, sort of the United States and American Presbyterians, and that, I love that tradition. Those are, Calvin is my favorite of the theologians of the Protestant Reformation. But I'm very grateful for the German Reformation. I'm very grateful for this, um, the, the other sort of broadly, uh, you know, the Reformation that happened in the Netherlands and, and different parts of Europe during that time. And, and certainly I love those confessions and lean on them as well. And they are, you know, in some way, I mean, I'll, you know, in some ways for certain things, I like the Heidelberg better even. Um, you know, I love Heidelberg one. Uh, and I don't think there's anything that really quite matches that, that sort of, statement of the, the personal connection between the believer and Christ um, so well in the Westminster Standards. And that's why part of why we use Heidelberg number one, right? Christian, what is your only hope in life and death? Um, so frequently in our worship service. So what do we mean by reform? We mean uh, a broader reform tradition. We also mean just, not just tulip, right? Not just, often people think of reform theology, they just think of, well, that means you believe in predestination. Well, we do believe in predestination, that's true. Um, um, absolutely. I don't want to apologize for that. But, we, but to be Reformed means far more than just believing in predestination, right? It means um, that we believe in the supremacy of Scripture above all things, um, all other human documents, and all other human wisdom. I love that the Westminster Standard starts with a, a chapter on Scripture, right? And that concludes with the statement that the only infallible rule in faith and life is Scripture, right? This is the the, the, uh, the standard by which all human controversies must be settled um, is by the Holy Spirit speaking through the scriptures. Um, I think that's really important to know. Like That's one of the fundamental things it means to be reformed, in my opinion, is to be reformed according to the scriptures, right? Even that slogan, reformed, that's how it was used, that we are reformed according to the scriptures. And so um, the Westminster Standards stand underneath the scriptures, and they can be amended. Um, we can change the Westminster Standards. Um, because they are subservient to um, the scriptures themselves. Um, I love our Reformed faith because um, I love the way that it's centered on the person of God um, in a really particular way. I think that's one of the strengths of the Reformed tradition, um, that we, we believe in the sovereignty of God. We believe that um, God works all things for his own glory. Um, it's, a, it's a God-centered system of doctrine, and I love that about the Reformed faith. Um, not only in terms of the way that we view election, but the way we view providence and creation, um, and even bigger questions like the ontological purpose of, of existence. All of those things in the Reformed system of doctrine are centered around the person of the triune God um, and his, his being, um, his existence being fundamental. 
And I think that's a really important aspect and that, and that of Reformed theology. And that influences the way that we preach here, um, the way that we pray, um, the way that we work out all of our Christian life, um, that we start with a kind of God-centeredness, I think, that is really important. Uh, we have a high view of preaching in the sacraments because we're Reformed Christians. We believe that preaching really is a means of grace and that it is, even as our um, catechism states, um, even more of an efficacious means of grace than private reading of the scriptures. We think that gathered Sunday morning worship when the, the, a, a delegated pastor, or a designated pastor, authorized pastor preaches God's word to God's people, that is the fundamental way that you receive the scriptures, um, even more than even your, in your private um, study you know, on Wednesday morning or whatever, um, that God actually declares the scriptures to you in a particularly efficacious way. And that's, that's a Reformed view. That's, that's what it means to be Reformed, is to have that kind of high view of preaching, a central view of preaching. In the same way with the sacraments. Because we're Reformed, uh, we believe that Christ is present, that He gives Himself to us in the sacraments, both in baptism and the Lord's Supper. Um, that we receive Him not carnally, not corporally, but really spiritually. Um, as our standard state, by the power of the Spirit, Christ Himself is offered to us. We don't simply have a, you know, an idea that what happens at the sacraments is primarily intellectual or primarily about um, what we bring to the table. No, it's about Christ being offered to us by the Spirit. They are a very real means of grace for us in that way. And that is a Reformed Protestant view, um, and that's why we hold it. I love the Reformed um, theology because I think Reformed theology has a kind of whole life approach to Christian discipleship. Right? We're going to talk about this some today when we talk about money in our sermon. Um, you know, I'm going to quote from Abraham Kuyper who said that you know, Jesus looks at everything right, and he says, there's not one square inch over which I am not Lord, that is not mine. Um, and I think that is a really important aspect of Reformed theology, that we don't have this sort of hard, sacred, secular divide, that there's parts of your lives that aren't under Christ's lordship and parts that are, no, everything. You have to work out everything in your life in submission to Jesus and to his word and to the law of God. Um, and I think that's a really important distinctive of Reformed um, theology. We have a positive view of God's law and the Old Testament in general. And this is a very important aspect of Reformed Presbyterian approach to um, the scriptures and to life in general. Um, that we don't, with our Lutheran brothers, just mainly see the law as something that teaches us that we're sinful wretches, right? And sort of stops there. We actually think that, yes, the law does do that. It does act as a mirror that reflects our sinfulness. But the law of God is actually perfect and right, right? And is sweeter than honey and more precious than gold, as the Psalms tell us. And that it actually gives us a course for human life that is good, that is um, something we are called into, to obedience of and submission to, um, as those who belong to Jesus and are empowered by the Spirit. That actually the law is for our good and we should seek, we should strain, we should strive to keep the law of God and to work it out in our lives. And yes, we will fall short and yes, we need forgiveness of our sins. But the law of God is not our enemy in some way, spiritually. It is our friend, it is our guide, it is the voice of Christ himself. And this, this I think, just... This is actually, I think, one of the more substantial differences um, between what we would say, you know, sort of Reformed theology and modern American evangelicalism, um, that we really want to hold um, a high view of God's law and to see it as a good and a positive in our life, something we should meditate and study and learn from and seek to apply um, to our daily life. And, this, and because of that, this opens up the Old Testament in a new way, I think. 
Um, that it, the Old Testament is not just the prelude to Jesus who comes and does something radically different um, when he teaches the law. No, the Old Testament, it's all one story. You know, Jesus is just exculpating um, the, the Old Covenant law um, to his context and through himself. Um, he's not changing it in some fundamental way. He's just unfolding it and revealing it in a new way. Um, and I think that's a really important aspect of what it means to be reformed. To be reformed means we have an emphasis on Christian liberty. Um, this is, you know, there's a chapter in Westminster Confession um, um, on Christian liberty. The idea that there are things that the Scriptures has taught us that we must submit to, um, but there is also liberty in Christ, uh, liberty of conscience, liberty of personal conviction to work out those things that God has taught us. For example, um, God has taught us clearly in Ephesians um, and elsewhere in Deuteronomy that, that Christian parents are to bring their children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. But we don't believe that I, as your pastor, should stand up here and like, give you a 10-step list of what that means exactly, right? That this means that you send your kids to this particular school or you don't send your kids to this particular school um, or you, you know, have family worship in particularly this way. Um, every day, that we actually believe that there is liberty in Christ, there's freedom in Christ for us to um, have even diversity of decisions and practices as long as we are generally in submission to God's Word. And this is actually, I think, a really important reform principle um, for us and for our church in general. I also love the reform tradition because um, in the Protestant reform tradition, you have this emphasis on congregational singing and participation in worship. Um, that may not jump out at you is like, oh, that's what Reformed people do. But it is what Reformed people do. Um, if you think back to the Protestant Reformation, uh, the Roman Catholic Mass at that time was essentially, in the late medieval church, something in which people came, but they were almost completely passive participants in, right? They just watched the priest up front do things, often in a language they didn't understand, um, and it just sort of happened. And many times they didn't even partake of, you know, of the sacrament itself. They couldn't understand the sermon many times. It was distant up there. And the reformers came, up, came in and said, uh, you know, really the Reformation in many ways was a reformation of worship primarily. Um, it was other things, but it was not primarily just abstract theological doctrines. It was like, how do God's people actually worship on the Lord's Day when they're together? Um, and one of the things they did was restored the laity to worship. Um, they built in liturgy. They had parts that the laity would speak and pray and say, and they restored singing to the laity. Um, in the vernacular, this is why, you know, one of the John Calvin's most important things he did was to write a, you know, to do the Genevan Psalter, right? To, to put the Psalms in French so that people could sing them. Um, th this was a huge part of what it means to be reformed. And, and I worry sometimes that today in modern evangelicalism, um, you know, we're sort of going back to a sign of late medieval approach to worship, right? Where people show up and it's really dark and you're sort of watching up on the stage, other people do things, and you're just sort of a passive recipient of what they're doing. Um, and, like, we don't want to do that. Like, that's not, ref to be reformed means that we want the congregation involved, right? We don't want you just to be a passive observer of someone up front doing something there. You sort of just watch. Um, this engagement, congregational participation, congregational singing, right? You are the choir, right? The congregation is the choir. That doesn't mean that we couldn't have a choir sometimes, but Fundamentally, the congregation is the choir. You are the worship band, right? There's, these are all deliberate um, choices on our part because we believe that there needs to be um, uh, congregational, full-hearted participation in worship. Any questions about that? Any of that before I move into 
some new stuff. Yes, sir. You mentioned amending the Westminster Dictionary. Yeah. If that were ever to happen, what would the process? Great question. So, yeah, so... No. I mean, it's something that's been debated. I mean, there have been study committees um, proposed, for example, to study the chapter on the Sabbath um, to see if there might be some amendments that need to be made there or um, other places. I mean, the Westminster Standards were amended when they were received by the American church, particular in terms of the relationship between the church and state. Um, we made some changes, you know, back in the late um, 1700s um, in that regard. Um, the way that it, the Westminster Standards can be amended, it would require a three-quarter vote at a General Assembly, in terms of the PCA. Um, a three-quarters vote at General Assembly. The following year, three-quarters of the Presbyterians would have to agree with whatever that change was uh, in a, an affirmative, take an affirmative vote. And then there would have to be another three-quarter vote at the subsequent year's General Assembly. Does that make sense? So it's a high standard. It's not, they're not easy to change. It would be, it would be difficult to change the standards in a, uh, especially in a way that would be controversial. Um, but it is possible. And it, I think it's important that we say, we can change the standards and that's fine. Like Everybody will get up the next day and we'll keep having church, even if the Westminster standards change. Um, it's a living document. It's not a static, fixed document. And that is really important to say. And there have been changes that have been made. Um, language was changed when the American church adopted um, the Westminster standards um, about 150 years or so after they were written. Yeah, Kim. Right. Um, a man named Jamie Smith has a great book called Letters to a Young Calvinist um, that I think does a really good job of talking about the broadness of the Reformed tradition. So that would, it's a pretty short book, uh, and he is more in the sort of Dutch continental tradition. Um, and I think, I think that's a book that I've used that has been helpful. Um, I mean, I think, I think just, you know, walking through the Westminster Standards is a helpful um, thing to do with people to show, you know, the, the standards certainly have chapters on God's decree and on uh, providence, and, you know, there are an election, these kinds of things, but so much of the standards are working out other things, other questions, um, even showing people the way that, well, the standards start with Scripture, right? There's a chapter on Scripture that's first, I think is a really important and then you could show them, you know, like the chapters on baptism and the Lord's Supper, um, you know, that, that just that, that these are, we're not just about, yeah, some kind of like tulip soteriology process. It, being reformed is far broader than that. Yeah, Patrick. Yeah, absolutely.
Yes, sir. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. So it makes sense. Yeah, a lot of lot of traditions in the church use reformed as an adjective, and they mean different things by that often. Um, that is certainly true. Yeah. No, I appreciate that, Sarah. That's good to hear. Yeah, Ben. Sure. No, that's a good way to put it. Most, the way most people be, be quote unquote become reformed if they, you know, come in from some other tradition is often through uh, changing their beliefs about God's sovereignty and, and their salvation. But yeah, then you get into it and you realize, oh, there's a lot more here than I bargained for, right? Uh, which is good. Which is good. And we can understand why that question, how are you saved, is a central one and one people would wrestle with. Yeah, Bob. Um, I, I understand that there's a very strict standard on allowing other people to, to use the pulpit. Yeah. Like in a worship service, you mean? That might be one. Yeah. Um, I, would, I would be very um, reticent to allow anyone to... Um, I mean, there's a reason we don't do testimonies on the Lord's Day in worship or just sort of... Um, people just bringing whatever, you know, kind of thoughts that they have about something, even if they're good thoughts. Um, we think we have a lot of, you know, really intelligent spiritual people here in this room on Sunday mornings. Um, but we also believe that God in his providence has um, set apart certain men, um, especially uh, those men called to ordain, be ordained pastors, to preach um, not just good thoughts, but actually to exposit the scriptures on Sunday morning. So I, I don't really know that there would be a scenario where we would have someone um, come and just talk about Christian discipleship or uh, no matter what their qualifications were. Um, not, not on the Lord's Day, um, not, not in Sunday morning worship. That's always going to be something that's going to be, in my mind, centered on the preaching of God's word by someone who's ordained for that task. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, and that's a pretty, and that has to do with what we believe preaching is for and how central it is um, and, and who may do it, um, that it is not something that just anyone can do. You have to be called and set apart and, um, and authorized to preach God's word um, on the Lord's day um, to God's people. And that that has to be the central, you know, we don't want, that's what we want people to hear when they come to church is, what God is saying through his scripture um, by, by the pastor that he's appointed. Yes, ma'am. 
Sure, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, there are definitely other opportunities for us to, this sanctuary hosts all kind of events during the week, right? We have CCA Chapel in here, and we have women's Bible study, and we have men's Bible study, and we have, um, you know, all sorts of things that happen during the week um, that are not, that are different events than Sunday morning, Lord's Day worship. And so there are different things that take place. Yeah, and that's totally fine. Absolutely. Any other questions or comments? Yes, sir. Absolutely, yeah, and like, yeah, like I said, I think there's a reason TULIP is often the first thing that people sort of wrestle with when they come to reform convictions from other traditions in the Christian church, yeah, because it, and it makes sense you'd want to wrestle through why, how, how am I saved and who's responsible for that ultimately. Right, exactly. Yes. Yeah, and that is a place where sometimes you get into an interesting dynamic where there are uh, folks in other traditions of the church that use the moniker Reformed, by which they primarily mean I'm a four- or five-point Calvinist. Um, but, yeah, it, it's kind of a, I mean, I think it's just confusing at the end of the day. Um, I'd love for them to choose a different moniker, um, if that's the case. Because I think the Reformed, you know, being Reformed has a lot more to do than just being a four or five point Calvinist, that it, it actually, um, you know, when you read the Institutes, Calvin talks about like a million things before he gets to election, actually. Um, and those are all really important things that are part of being reformed. And um, yeah, yeah. But, you know, that's just one of those things that we just have to do our best to, to properly define what we mean by reformed um, so that people have the right idea. And I think that's good. That's a good way for us to think about it, that we want to talk about all these different wonderful things that we appreciate about the tradition that we belong to. And I should say, too, we also believe, you know, um, just as Calvin believed and Luther believed that the sort of quote-unquote reformed tradition didn't, wasn't invented in um, the 16th century, right? But actually, it's, it's the reformed tradition, Protestant tradition, is, we think, the actual Catholic universal tradition of the church um, um, that is, you know, in the, the broad mainstream of Christianity um, that was, you know, deviated from at different times um, in the medieval church um, and restored in some ways, certainly in the Protestant Reformation. But, you know, Calvin and Luther didn't have some kind of, um, uh, we don't think, some kind of inspirational moment with the Holy Spirit where suddenly, you know, they're like Joseph Smith and they had the golden spectacles all of a sudden. Um, they were just going back to what the scriptures taught and what had the church had broadly held um, for many, many years, for centuries. Um, and so the church fathers are really important to us. Augustine, Athanasius, you know, I love Athanasius, I love Augustine. Um, I love some of the medieval theologians who were more faithful than others 
Um, and so I think it's important for us to say that, and that's part of why Mike's teaching the class he's teaching, to show some of those connections. Yeah, um, let me go to Kendra and then James. Yeah. Uh, often when people are, I mean, it depends on the person, but often a person who describes themselves as a four-point Calvinist would not agree with limited atonement. That's usually the, the missing fifth point. Um, so the idea that Christ died only for the elect. Yeah. Does that make sense? Often, you, you sometimes have people that will say, I'll affirm these other four points, but I, I can't do a limited atonement, so they'll call themselves a four-point Calvinist. Yeah. James. I mean, I think that's fine. I think it's just confusing when we all use the same term to mean different things. Yeah. So. Because I'm just thinking of several Presbyterian churches that don't have a Calvinist Mm-hmm. I agree, and that's confusing too. Yeah, that there's interesting ways in which, yeah. People. Maybe at that point, have to say, oh, they're not reformed. Right. No, I don't think we have to say that. I th- I think we can clarify what we mean. I just think sometimes it can be, you know, confusing. Um, you know, you've Reformed Episcopals, you have Reformed Baptists, you have Reformed um, Presbyterians. I mean, you just, you know, so it just, it gets, it gets confusing sometimes. But yeah, it's, it's an interesting discussion to think about. I don't, I certainly don't want to like stake our flag in the ground and say, we're the only way people who can use the language Reformed because, because we have it, you know, we're the purest expression of John Calvin or something. Um, but I, I do think, so I do think the onus is just on, well, what do you mean by reformed? What does that mean to you? I think that's a good question when people use that word. And I think you'll find that often people mean different things. So, yes, ma'am. One last question from Sarah, and, and then we'll wrap up. Yeah, it's okay. I mean... Certainly, I think there are core principles. <laughs> I think they're summarized in the Westminster Confession, personally, um, which I see as the you know, in- inheritor of Calvin, the tradition of Calvin. Um, but I-, I don't think that I have the you know, authority to tell someone they can't, they can't call themselves Reformed. I just might say, well, you mean one thing by that, I mean a different thing by that. And we could look at the historical evidence and talk about which is actually more in line with what the people who were called the reformers actually believed. You know what I mean? So, yeah, and I think, I think largely people who use those words reformed, they often have different views on the sacraments, which is interesting. Um, either the baptism of infants or on, as James pointed out, the efficacy of the sacraments. Um, and I think it is interesting. And, I, I'd, and I'd love to talk to those people about why I think what we believe is more reformed and more importantly, reformed according to the scriptures. Um, all right, let's, uh, let's stand and pray. Father, we're grateful for the opportunity to be in your house on your day, the day you've given us. We pray that you would bless us even as we try to continue to work out what it means for us to be um, a faithful church here in the mid-cities of Dallas-Fort Worth in the 21st century. Um, Father, give us grace, give us wisdom, help us to, um, um, to love the things you've given us to love, Father, um, and to be humble and um, gracious about them even as we do it. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.